Joshua chapter 1. I want to talk to you for a few minutes today from these two passages. From John chapter 20, reading two verses, verses 18 and 19. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Then the same day at evening, when being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. What I want to draw your attention to is that they were assembled in a room for fear of the Jews. And then to Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid. Neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with you, whithersoever you go. I got a word for you today, and I don't usually have the word in the title. But this time, I really felt strongly that the Lord wants me to tell you, be strong and be courageous. It's a very simple word. I don't know how long I'm going to preach, but I want to deliver this as best as God gave it to me. And uh, so, so in John chapter 20, the disciples were hiding for fear of the Jews. Now recall that they had just seen Jesus crucified. This was the one whom they left everything to follow. Families, jobs, houses, land, and friends. And the one whom they thought was going to be their Messiah. They were sure of it. Matter of fact, was just a few weeks earlier that they had that triumphant entry into Jerusalem where the crowd, hundreds of them, perhaps thousands, waved palm branches and cried, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. That was the title of the Messiah, them claiming him as their Messiah. And now they were hiding, fearful of what may happen next and wondering if this was really the end. And when Mary runs in to tell them that she had just seen Jesus, and that he had been resurrected from the dead, they likely did not believe her. Now their doubt was well-founded because under the law, the testimony of a woman wasn't worth much at all. Now thank God that changed under the New Testament as we heard in deeper waters today. But until Jesus appeared to them, they likely did not give that much credit. And a few days later, the, when the day of Pentecost happened, you know what happened then when the day of Pentecost was fully come. And they were no longer hiding for fear of the Jews, but it was Peter that stood out boldly and said, you know, these men are not drunk as you suppose, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. You see, what the disciples thought was the end was really only the beginning. Now the twelve did not understand that Jesus had a plan that was far greater than anything that they could ever have thought up in their minds. As a matter of fact, when you read your Bibles, the Bible says that the plan of salvation was hidden in God from the beginning of time. The cross was the hidden plan of God. From Isaiah 55 and verse 8, the Lord says this, Isaiah says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so from their thinking and from their mindset, they thought that the Messiah would come 
and that he would be this military ruler and that he would take over by force. And that was a great plan in their mind because they hated the Romans and probably for perhaps good reason. But Jesus came, of course, as we know, for a much different purpose and a much greater purpose. <clears throat> you see, just because you don't understand or see God's hand at work does not mean that he does not have a plan. Because let me tell you this, God always has a plan. Say, God always has a plan. When everything is in reverse in your life, God always has a plan. Even in the reversals, in the promotions, he's got a plan. When you've fallen, he's got a plan to pick you back up again. When you fail, he's got a plan to make you succeed. Because God always has a plan. When you try to work things out to the best of your ability and it seems like everything crumbles and falls, God always has a plan. When your Messiah has been crucified a bloody death and you don't see any good in sight, God always has a plan. Now, you don't even need me to tell you that that's a word from God because you know that's true because his word declares it. And that's, that's a more sure word than anything that I could tell you. But the disciples thought they were backed up into a corner with little or no hope, that it was all over, that maybe God made a mistake or that God's plan was thwarted by the ugliness of man. You ever heard people say that? Well, I, I think this should have happened, but... But this person interfered or this happened or that happened. God always has a plan. If you got to write that down in your Bibles, you may need to come back to it at some point. Because God always has a plan. God was working his plan in the midst of the chaos. Now, chaos often seems to stop us in our tracks and deter us and discourage us. But God knew the chaos before it became chaos. As a matter of fact, there's a word, uh, there's a verse in Isaiah where it says God created the chaos so he could be God in the midst of the chaos. Amen, amen. And so, so the disciples were backed up into a corner, or they, so they thought. But then, but then they got together and they prayed for 10 days in Acts chapter 2 happened, they had to learn that our back is often to the wall, but God is never backed up into a corner. He can never be defeated, and his back is never to the wall, and he's never out of options. God always seems to love to move in the midst of the most adversarial of circumstances. And when all hope appears to be completely lost as far as we can see, and everybody else shakes their heads and they say, well, all we can do is pray. That's our last hope. We don't really think it's going to help much. But all we can do is pray now because it's out of our hands. Really, we probably should have been doing that all along. Trust and obey and pray. <laughs> Amen. But that seems to be when he loves showing his power the most is when people's back is to the wall. Here are a few examples in scripture. Israel 
was in slavery for 400 years, over 400 years. Despite God's promise to Abraham generations earlier that Abraham's seed would be a numerous people that would inherit great land and would impact the entire world. And then suddenly out of nowhere walks this 80-year-old man with sand, with sand in his sandals saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, who in the world are you? Don't you know who I am? And, and then he asked a really stupid question. Who is the Lord? God said, I'll just show you who I am. <laughs> I'm going to send a few plagues. I'm going to show you who I am. Daniel, in a hungry den alliance. Man, if, if, if you were thrown in a hungry den alliance, you or me, we may not have that much faith, but Daniel was not out of faith. The three Hebrew children burning, thrown in a burning fiery furnace, heated seven times hotter. Moses and Israel with Pharaoh's army behind them and the Red Sea in front of them. And God said, stretch out your rod over the sea, Moses, and the waters parted. Israel hungry and thirsty in a hot, barren desert. Nothing to eat in sight. Nothing at all but scorpions and whatever else lies out there in that barren desert. And they prayed and bread, angels' food, fell from heaven. And they were thirsty, and Moses smote a rock, and water gushed out of a rock. The twelve needed money in one place to pay taxes, and Jesus pulled it out of a fish's mouth. Sarah was 90 years old, and her womb was dead, but she still had a promise of a son, even though her womb was dead and she was barren. She had that promise that she would become a mighty nation. And Abraham and Sarai held on to that promise until God made it happen when it was past the point to which humanity or human efforts would have brought it to pass. Scriptures are filled with many examples of people whose backs were to the wall and who were out of options. And then they saw their miracle when everything else seemed like it was gone. As the scriptures say this in Psalm 113, verse 5, Who is like the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in earth? David said, Man, I searched high and low. I searched under every mountain. I went down into every valley. I went across every pasture. I looked across every sea, every ocean. I went into every people. I looked at every temple that I could find that was built to other gods. And perhaps their temple was greater than the one that his son would have built. But he said, Who is like the Lord our God? And in case you missed the punctuation, that was not a question. It was an exclamation point. Uh, it, was, it, it was a solid point. Who is like the Lord? Because when we get to looking at other things, we miss how big God really is and how quickly he can turn things around for our good. When evil rises, God is up to something bigger. He's still God who controls the winds and the waves and holds the seven stars in his hand. We are seeing great evil right now rise before our eyes. It's always been rising, in case you've missed that. But it's rising now more than it's ever been before. And it is, it is rising even as we speak. Here's, here's, here's some of that evil. You may have heard recently how the Equality Act was passed in Congress and now it will face the United States Senate. And honestly, I don't know what happened there. This is not the first time that they've tried to pass this Equality Act. The, I'm told, so I've read on the news, that, that, that the, the Democrats need 10, 10 votes for it to pass. The 10 Republicans to cross over. 
And so this is not a Republican or a Democrat issue because people on both sides of the aisle have pushed for it. So this is not a political statement, but this goes along with what's happening in our world today. Here are a few things, a few highlights of this Equality Act. Under the broad reach of the Equality Act, schools, churches, and hospitals, and churches could be forced and would be forced to accept the government's beliefs and mandates about sexual orientation and gender identity or be forced or be forced to either either be heavily fined or even be closed schools would be coerced into instructing first second and third graders that they can choose to be a boy or a girl or neither or both making biological sex and science a relic of the past it threatens the right of Christian and other religious ministries to hire people of shared faith to pursue a shared mission and churches who have always enjoyed the freedom from government interference and their constitutional right that, according to the United States Constitution, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof now could be forced to hire homosexuals. It would be a tool used by the government to deny or threaten accreditation to religious colleges and universities if they do not satisfy the demands of the secular left to apply sexual orientation and gender identity to dorms, sports, places of privacy, and even their teachings. And these are just a few of the things that the Equality Act endorses and want to change in America. Now, in case you're confused, as I've already said, it's really not a left or right issue. It's an evil issue. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Your enemy is not the person sitting in the White House or sitting next to you. Your enemy is the, is the enemy of your soul, that old serpent, the devil, that deceives the nations of the world, and that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing deception that's creeping into our, our country and our world. And it's been here a long, long time. It's the spirit of the Antichrist that is rising in our world today. And if you don't believe that, then with all due respect, you simply have not been paying attention. Because it has been here for a while. Matter of fact... Here, here it is in your own Bible, 1 John 2 and 18, little children, it is the last time, and as you have heard, then Antichrist shall come. Yet, even now, there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Later on in, the, in that book, he would talk about the spirit of the Antichrist. In the first century, you know, they fought, this, uh, they fought this doctrine that Jesus Christ really did not come in the flesh. That was called Gnosticism. Okay, so Gnosticism means like secret knowledge, and it was the secret knowledge that Jesus Christ was some phantom, you know, thing. He wasn't, didn't really come in human flesh, but he came as a phantom. He just appeared and just, you know, disappeared. Of course, the problem with that is if he didn't come in the flesh, he can't die in the flesh. And if he didn't die in the flesh, he didn't raise from the dead in the flesh. There was, that's the gospel right there that destroys the gospel. So that's why he said that every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is what? Antichrist. So the Antichrist, that doctrine has been sowing false seed into the church, and now it's sown its lies into the world. The spirit of the Antichrist has been here since the very first century, I think. That at various times in history, it probably thought that it was its time. 
you know, Napoleon and Charlemagne and other, other, other leaders, you know, who may have tried to take over the world at various places, World War I, World War II, there was no doubt that there was some very heavy demonic activity that was going on in our world with all those people that were being slaughtered and martyred, Jews, etc., and the Holocaust, but that was the spirit of the Antichrist rising or trying to rise to power, and that is the same thing we are seeing right now. There is a stronger hatred for Christianity now than there was 30 years ago. There is a stronger hatred for the doctrine of Christ than there was 30 years ago. Jesus said it like this. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Jesus said, if you love me, you've got to keep my commandments. Nobody, you know, there's a lot of people that say, I love Jesus, but they don't live like he did. They don't live like he said. If you love Jesus, then you better put your money where your mouth is. And I don't just mean money as in your actions. I mean your money, 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 money. You're giving, and I, I know that you give. Uh, but there is a strong hatred for Christianity. But let me remind you of this. There is not a single plan or thought or ambition that the enemy has that God is not keenly aware of. As a matter of fact, you can go back way before the dawn of time. Way back before there were there was angels created. Way back before there was light even created itself. And God by himself dwelt in the blackest of darkness when there was not a single cell or, or, or molecule in the entire known universe or unknown universe. When nothing was there, there was God all by himself. And conceived in the mind of God was a plan of redemption. And God wrote the beginning and the end and all the middle way before any of this ever even was thought of or happened. God always has a plan. Because right now, God is positioning the world for the greatest harvest that we've ever seen. It will be its last, I believe, and final and greatest Gentile harvest before he comes back. Because we're kind of where Habakkuk was. In Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2, Habakkuk was surrounded by evil in his day. But he said, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid, O Lord. Revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk was praying for revival in the midst of evil in his generation. Let me tell you, I know that there's a lot of evil. It's not hard to point that out. I just talked about one of the many aspects of evil that's in our society. We can talk about how abortion has killed tens of millions of babies and children, and how not that's just in America. That's I don't even want to think about what it is worldwide. Every nation, nearly every nation on earth has the blood of innocent children on its hands. That is just one of the many evils that is rising in our world today. Anybody can point that out, but let me tell you, I'm believing God that in the midst of the years, God will remember mercy and that we are going to see the greatest harvest that we have ever had in our entire life that's ever been since the first century Pentecost. The first century reached the entire then known world and we will too in our day. In the midst of the darkest night, light will shine forth. And you remember this, that Elijah saw many miracles in his day, including an abundance of rain after many years of drought and famine, but not absent Jezebel sitting on the throne. Because evil never stops 
God. It just presents him with a greater opportunity to show forth his power and authority in the earth. We must not lose heart in this hour and stay tucked away in our little rooms like the disciples after Jesus' resurrection. We need a spirit of boldness to come on us, to come over us, that would say God is with us, God is for us. You know, the enemy is not going to have his way in this day. The enemy is going to try, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. 2 Timothy 1 says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but power and love and a sound mind. I know it's simple, but it needs to be said. Jesus never fails. You might fail, but Jesus never does. Amen. In Isaiah 6 and verse 1, the Bible says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high. I saw the Lord sitting also upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Now, King Uzziah in case you were not aware, was a very good king. He was a godly king. Now, mostly, he made a, a few mistakes or two. But he was overall a good king. And he was the prophet's best friend. Now, considering how much persecution prophets took in those days, that was a good thing. Because oftentimes, God was going to give a prophet a word that was not good for the king. That was, you know, something along the lines of God, you know, you, you know, God tells the prophet to go to King Ahab or this king or that king and say, you know what, king, you've been a bad boy. And God's going to judge you real good and your sons are going to be beggars. Now, that's gonna, not going to be something the king's going to clap gleefully over. And so most of the time, prophets were slaughtered. They were killed. They were beheaded. Jeremiah was thrown into prison. He had his book burnt. Had to write it all over again. The book of Jeremiah, had to write it all over again. <coughs> Jeremiah spent many days in a pit, in a muddy pit. And, and Isaiah was probably afraid that this would happen to him. And so he makes a point to say, <clears throat> in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Friendly kings were rare for prophets in those days. You can read the book of Kings and, and Judges to know that. And how now his friend was dead. And that brought a lot of instability in Isaiah's life. What would the new king be like? Would he be benevolent? Would he be harsh? Would he be a fool or a tyrant? And what about the threat of Syria to the north or Babylon to the east? There was one of their predominant military powers at that time. Uzziah's death was heavy for Isaiah to bear, and he dreaded the time when it would happen. As he saw, as Isaiah looked at Uzziah, and he saw that he was getting more and more sick and more and more weak, and he knew the day was going to come. And so he goes out of his way to write, in the year that King Uzziah died, this is what happened to me. Isaiah's death was a heavy burden for Isaiah to bear, and he dreaded that when it would happen. But when you read the text carefully, Isaiah said, In that same year that I was going through all of that, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now, there were many visions of God in the Bible. Abraham, for example, had God directly speak to him with two of his angels. Moses had God speak to him out of a burning bush. Uh, Balaam saw God speak basically from a donkey's mouth. Many saw an angel of the Lord, as Israel did. 
Daniel spoke face to face with Michael the archangel. But as far as I can tell, there were only two times in the entire Bible that anybody ever saw God sitting upon his throne and in that exact context. And the first one was in Isaiah, when Isaiah said, this is when I saw the Lord. And the second time was John the Revelator. Now Isaiah saw God sitting on his throne before the incarnation. So he didn't describe God as the Lamb of God and Savior. (coughs) But John saw him in all of his glory in Jesus Christ. But Isaiah received a special revelation that day. Because as, as Isaiah saw and stewed over who was sitting atop Israel's throne, God was telling him, you need to know who's sitting atop heaven's throne. So Isaiah said, man, I was worried about who was sitting atop Israel's throne and what was going to happen and, and, and what kind of legislation they were going to pass and, and what was going to happen with this and what was going to happen to our country and what was going to happen to our economy and what's going to happen to my job and how am I going to make ends meet and what about gas prices and all those other things. But God was showing Isaiah it doesn't matter because the same one that is sitting on heaven's throne has always been sitting on heaven's throne. And I have a plan. Through it all. When you can't see it, I've got a plan. When you're in the dark, I'm in the light. And God loves to work in the dark, at least when we're in the dark. When everything is in reverse in our life and it seems like all hell has broken loose. God said, I've got a plan and you've got to be bold and you've got to be full of faith and you can't let the enemy discourage you during these times and you can't look around at all the junk and garbage that's happening in our world as if we're supposed to be surprised that the world is being the world. You know what? The church needs to be the church. Amen. The church needs to say, God is with me. God is for me. Amen. God is not going to let us down. He's going to do everything that he promised. So God was telling Isaiah, you don't see, you don't need to see Uzziah. You need to see the Lord large and in charge. Regardless of what may happen in your life, he's still in charge. Romans 5 and 20 says this, moreover, the law entered that the offense made abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more about my kids go now they're both in high school they will tell you that it is not it is not uncommon for middle schools even to to refer to themselves as non-binary if you go to school unfortunately you know what that means it means you're neither male nor female you're just somewhere in the middle depending on the day i suppose now please understand i'm not making fun or poking fun this is the reality of our world today they are actively propagating and advocating for this to happen and encouraging kids. Now, again, I I don't want you to think this is a left or right issue. This is an evil issue. This is what is happening in our world today, folks. And we can look around at all that and say, man, the world's going to hell in handbasket. Why don't we just be like Merle Haggard and say, well, you know, what's that song he said? Uh, Are we rolling downhill like a snowball headed for hell? Let's all turn on some Merle today and say, man, look how bad the world is. You know what? That shouldn't shock any of us that the world is going to be the world. You know what? Because Paul said where sin abounded everywhere, God said, I've got you covered. Because where there's sin, he said, I'm just going to give more grace. Amen. Where there's bondages and chains, God said, I'm going to increase the power that I put into my church. 
And that's why you're seeing that as sin begins to abound, and as we're seeing that spirit of the Antichrist trying to rise to power, you're going to see the miraculous power and signs of God come upon his church like we have never seen before. Nobody ever did what Moses did until Pharaoh said, I will not let them go. Nobody did what Moses did prior to Moses doing it. And, 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 and when did it happen? When did God show himself the strongest he had ever showed himself up to that point? When Pharaoh said, nope, not going to happen. I'm going to keep them right here. They've been here for 420 years. I'm going to keep making them bricks. They're going to keep being held in slavery. I'm going to keep them right here. But God said, I've got this 80-year-old dude. He's in the backside of the desert. He thinks his life is over. He's got a nice wife, a couple kid poos. You know, he's, I don't know how old his kids were, but, you know, Moses thought he's going to retire and he's 80 years old, climbing up a mountain, sand in his sandals. And suddenly a burning bush appeared to him. Nobody knew at that point what was getting ready to happen, but God was getting ready to shake up the earth by the rod of one single man. <laughs> and God told Moses in the burning bush, Others have known me by many names, but by my name Jehovah was I not known. That's the redemptive name for God in the Old Testament. In other words, Abraham knew God as the El Shaddai. That means God Almighty. You know, he, he saw a son. Sarah gave birth to a son. She was 90 years old. I mean, that's, that's God Almighty. Okay, that's like Sister Wallard. You know, never know. <laughs> God Almighty, 90 years old, and popping out. And you know, the other miracle was they had the strength to raise him at 90. I mean, come on. God Almighty. And so there was a progressive revelation of God's character through his name in the Old Testament. And, 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 and the crescendo of it, or, or, you know, or the toppling point of it was, at least to that point, was whenever God told Moses, I'm getting ready to reveal myself in a way that nobody has known me heretofore. And so he said, I'm getting ready to show the entire world that I'm not just God Almighty, that I'm not just God over a dead womb, that I am not just, you know, your friend to Abraham, that I'm not just all these other things, but I'm getting ready to show the world that I am the God who not just creates the earth and, and, and speaks things into existence, but I am the God who redeems my people. And when evil was at its height, Pharaoh, you know, you know, Egypt was demonically possessed. And if you don't know that, all you got to do is study all the religions that they had and their rituals for burying the dead. It was a demonic filth. Amen. Nisra was right there in the middle of it all. And God said, you know what? I don't care about any of it. All I need is one man that is willing. And I'm going to increase my power on the earth so that I've never, ever increased it before. And God gave Moses a special ability with the outstretched rod that he had that nobody else had had before. And God gave Moses a revelation of his character and his name. And let me tell you this, that the first century church saw great many signs and wonders and miracles. And they reached the entire then known world with in only just a few years, but what we are getting ready to see is going to be so much greater, and it's going to be an increase of power and authority like we have never seen before, because evil is at its height, and evil is greater than it has ever been, but God said we're sin abounded, grace did much more abound, and power, and remember grace, you know, we think that verse means 
where sin abounded, mercy abounded. <coughs> but that's not what it says. Where sin abounded, what abounds? Grace. Grace and mercy are not the same. Mercy is when God forgives you of something and he wipes the slate clean. That's mercy. Thank you, Jesus. And there's an element to grace that's similar to that. The Bible does say that grace brought salvation down. But there's another element to that. Remember whenever Paul had that infirmity in his flesh and he prayed for God to remove it? God said, nope. Paul was getting all these revelations and God said, I'm not going to remove it. And what did God tell Paul? My grace is sufficient for me. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. <laughs> Amen. You see, the grace of God is the strength of the Spirit. It is the hand of God that comes on us that lets us go one more mile, that lets us pray one more prayer, that lets us call down fire from heaven, that gives us the power and the signs and the wonders and the miracles. And so Paul said, where grace abounded, not just mercy, or where sin abounded, not just mercy, but the grace of God will increase in the church and the power and the strength of the Holy Ghost will be upon us. And we will do things that we have never done before. We're getting ready to step into it. We're getting ready to step into it. Numbers 34 and 14 says, For the tribe of the children of Reuben, according to the house of their fathers, and the tribe of the children of Gad, according to the house of their fathers, have received the inheritance, but watch this, in half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance. Now, why was it only half? Because the other half of the tribe was content on the other side of the Jordan River and outside of the promised land. Do you remember when they came to that particular territory that was just outside of the Jordan just outside of the promised land. And they approached to Moses and they said, you know, it's not so bad here. We got enough grass to feed our cattle. We can just <clears throat> stay right here. We don't want to go and have to fight all those battles and do all that stuff. We're content right here. And, and, and you know, God, God doesn't make us do this. I mean, it, it's a walk of faith. You know, we, we know that because of what happened to them 40 years earlier. You know, they came and, and well, you know that story the first time they came. But now they're, now they're here again, and God said, you know, God told Moses, fine, just let them stay here. Because only half the tribe of Manasseh came into the promised land. <clears throat> Reuben was the eldest son of Jacob <clears throat> and should have received his father's greatest blessing. Now, you know that was called the birthright. But he defiled his father's bed, and so it passed on to the sons of Joseph, who were Ephraim and Manasseh. However, Manasseh was the eldest not Ephraim, and should have got the greater blessing. But when Jacob, who was on his deathbed, and he was laying his hands on Ephraim and Manasseh, you remember what he did? He crossed his hands, and his right hand, which is you know, symbolic of who, the, who, who would receive the greater blessing, came on the head of the youngest. <clears throat> and his left hand was on the head of the eldest. So it was passed on to Ephraim, 
When Jacob crossed his hands, the greater blessing fell unto Ephraim and not Manasseh. It was a prophecy that Ephraim would be greater than Manasseh, and that prophecy was literally fulfilled years later when half, only half, stayed on the other side of Jordan and refused to fight for their promised land. And half the tribe stayed away from all of the promises, away from the tabernacle of God, away from the voice of the prophets and kings that God would send to them, only came to half the tribe that came into their promised land. Because the other half stayed outside and said, we're content and happy just living here. We don't want to be bothered and disturbed. And that tribe was the first to go into exile under the Assyrians. Nobody is more haunted than those that were haunted by the ghost of what might have been. And let me tell you, we've got giants all around us, and like Joshua of old, the Lord himself is sending forth his armies ahead of us, and he's saying this to us, to Refuge Church today, go and take the land. I'm almost done, musicians come. Remember the story of Elijah and Jezebel. Of course, you know that, that uh, Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab, but really she was the one on the throne, and we know that from multiple places in scripture that seem to include that. But Elijah had a revival in Israel despite that fact that Jezebel was there. You know, he had he saw about eight miracles. Elisha, Elisha had a double portion. He saw 16. The six, there were 16 miracles recorded in scripture that Elisha has, only eight that Elijah had. But Elijah was a man of great faith and power. <clears throat> he called down fire from heaven and it consumed, you know, all the sacrifices and he, the Bible says this, <clears throat> that same day, he slew 450 prophets of Baal. <clears throat> so this wasn't some limp-wristed man. He was a mighty warrior. By himself, slew 450 prophets of Baal. And then he, do, he goes and he does this. He gets a letter as he's probably celebrating somewhere, eating at Applebee's afterwards. And he gets a text. To make it youth lingo, he gets a text from Jezebel. And it says something like this Hey, Elijah, I heard you killed 450 of my prophets. By the way, God's going to do that to me and more also if by this time you're not dead also. Love, Jez. It didn't go exactly like that, but it was something similar to it. You know what Elijah did? He ran. And he hid. And he hid in the cave. He pouted. I'm sure none of you have ever done that before. Because you're, you're all full of faith and nobody here ever does that. <clears throat> I've never done it either, by the way. He hid in the cave. And finally, God came to him and said, what's wrong with you? <laughs> that was the question. It was for him, obviously. And, and, and you know the story. You know there was an earthquake and a fire and a wind and all this stuff. And God wasn't in any of it. But God was in the still small voice. And Elijah said, you know, they've killed all these prophets and only I am alone to left and just, you might as well just kill me too. I'm, I'm no better than my fathers. My fathers died. I'm just going to die right here too. Now, God did have more plans for Elijah, but here's the thing. Eventually, God told Elijah that he needed to anoint somebody else to slay the woman that he had just proven that he had power over. You remember who it was that God told Elijah to slay or to anoint? was Jehu, who would be the next king. Now, 
in, from a logical perspective, needed to be a king, probably, because he would be the king, so it makes sense. He would have to break that spirit if he's going to reign with the power that God wanted him to reign in. There's another aspect of this, and it's this, that it was very shortly after that that God took up Elijah in a, in a whirlwind, in a chariot of fire. And Elijah was taken up, but he never had to face that spirit. But you know, who else had to face it over and over and over and over again? It was every other prophet after him. Because while that spirit was temporarily broken, it still continued to reappear over and over. And it eventually led Israel into captivity. As we stand, I will tell you this. Elijah could fight one spirit. But when, the, but when a Jezebel spirit began to confront Elijah he did not have power over it likely because he did not know what he was battling and let me tell you this I'm for carrying placards and peacefully protesting and doing all these things but really none of those things are really going to further our cause much but you know what is going to further our cause when we get a Bible study chart and we teach somebody about the gospel of Jesus Christ and when we start getting the fire in our souls and the passion in our spirits that burns in us like Jehu, where God told Jehu, tell him, don't just ride, but ride furiously. Let me tell you, this is not a time to casually mount up on our horse and go watching through the city like Mordecai I did. This is a time to ride furiously. We need to be angry at the devil about the things that are happening in our world and angry enough to pray and to seek God and to cast out these spirits. Because the only hope for our nation is the church. This nation will not stand a single day without God's church. We are the salt of the earth. We've always been. And America needs the church now more than it's ever been before. Even if our leaders may not always recognize it, America needs a praying, apostolic, spirit-filled, Jesus' name, holiness, loving, devil-stomping church. Amen. That's not afraid. Amen. That will step out into the scene and say, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but power and love and a sound mind. So don't let that, that enemy tell you that you don't got power over it because God says this morning, I'm getting ready to increase my power in the earth. I'm getting ready to increase it like you've never seen before because of our sin abounded grace. Abound. Lift your hands right now to the Lord. Come on, let your voices out for a moment. Come on, let it be a war cry here for just a few moments. Come on, somebody needs to ride furiously. In the name of Jesus right now, in the name of Jesus right now. Amen. Come on, let's do that without music for just a moment. I think we were allowed to. Uh, just lift your voices out right now. There's something here. Come on, in Jesus' name, let your voices out. Ride furiously. Spirit of Jezebel has to be broken and cast out. <laughs> In the name of Jesus right now. In the name of Jesus right now. 
Lord, do a work in this place, God. Baptize us with boldness and fire like we've never had it before, God. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus right now. If you will make yourself available right now at this altar, God will God will begin to use you in ways that you've never thought of before. If you will make yourself available right now in this place at this altar. In the name of Jesus right now. In the name of Jesus right now. Oh, God, send fire down, send it on our kids, God, send it on our elders, God, send it down on our middle-aged group, God, send down fire in this place like we've never seen it before, God. Let there be a church that rides furiously, God, and breaks the back of the enemy, God, because you have destined the church, God, for such an hour as this. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Yes, God, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Come on, don't stop. Let your voices out. Don't stop now. In the name of Jesus, God. In the name of Jesus, God. Some of you have loved ones right now that are in deep spiritual bondage to the enemy. You need to just call out their names right now in faith and believe God that the Lord is going to begin to do a work, begin to break the back of the enemy in their life, God. Jezebel asked Jehu, is it peace? He said, no, not as so long as thy whoredoms have filled up the land. There will be no peace. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus right now, God. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Lord, baptize us with a burden again, God. Jesus, send us deliverance down. Oh, we got to be discerning of the times. We can't be like Elijah and miss what's really attacking our world today. Hallelujah, 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 H
Satan would love to kill what God has destined. But greater is he that is in us. Sin is not in travail, she brought forth her children. I tell you a little Jesus, the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. 